0: Buddhist Geeks, Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 165, I'm not babysitting your ego. Spiritual teacher Adya Shanti joins us again, this time to discuss the power dynamics of the teacher-student relationship, a process of writing inquiry that he created, and the importance of relying completely on oneself as a spiritual authority. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate.
1: Another topic, and one that's just really alive in a lot of practitioners conversations in their minds is this whole question around um, power and hierarchy when it comes to the student-teacher relationship. And I was recently on a Zen session and and there was a, a very clear hierarchy between the teacher and us and I really saw the potential there for both abuse and for people's issues around power coming up. And then I also saw the potential that differential created to sort of get over my egoic tendencies and to step into a place of mystery and not knowing and challenging myself in a really positive, healthy way that I normally maybe wouldn't do on my own. And so it seemed really clear that there were some potentially positive things from this and then some potentially downsides from this. And it seems clear that we're not going the way of Eastern cultures that had these really clear authoritarian power structures in place. And I was wondering in your own teaching how the relationship between yourself and your students of power and hierarchy, how you've dealt with that over time and and where it's at now.
2: Okay, well it's it's evolved over time and most of the evolution has been just for a practical reason more than a strategic reason. By that I mean when the numbers of students get to a certain place, you know, I simply could no longer have more these sort of closer real personal relationships with my students. So I just didn't have the time to do it, you know? It's one thing when I had 30 people at a retreat, but when I have 350, you can't see everybody in private. You, know, mm-hmm. you can't even see a small portion of them. But outside of that, my own sense of it is, at least as a teacher, I think that every teacher-student situation you walk into has some sort of, there's some sort of agreement you're making. You may be making it unconsciously, but you're making it nonetheless. Like you said, if you go to a sort of real traditional Zen setup in a Zen situation, there's an unspoken agreement that the teacher is the final authority and the teacher's way is, is the way. You're meant to kind of lower your ego, right, in the presence of that. And that has a lot of, Potentially positive aspects to it, because it does challenge your ego kind of very quickly, right? Your ego realizes that it doesn't have the, um, it's not in control of the situation.
1: Yeah.
2: That's probably the most useful thing about a more authoritarian, traditional kind of teacher-student relationship is that the ego doesn't really get to play its games if it's done right. And I think, you know, everyone could draw their own conclusions about what the potential drawbacks are, but I think we all know that any kind of power has, unless one is really conscious, it has a, a potentially corruptive quality to it, unless you're really on top of things. For me, the unspoken agreement that I have with people, I basically, and I tell people this all the time, I say, basically, you're the authority. Which is my way of saying, you have to take responsibility for yourself right at the beginning. I'm not really here to babysit anybody. I'm not here to play the role of a traditional authoritarian figure. Even though it may look that way because I'm sitting up on a stage, for instance, and just the setup has the look of a certain kind of power structure. But internally, I'm always trying to put responsibility back on to people back onto themselves, and I even tell people, look, if you're looking for somebody to babysit your ego all the time, then you're with the wrong teacher. I'm not here to do that. That's not what I'm here to do, which is a different kind of agreement, right? It's a different way of going about it. People that are going to really benefit from the way that I teach are going to be people who can kind of, they're self-motivated, spiritually and they are sort of willing to take on responsibility for themselves without just sort of grabbing that from an egoic perspective. You are quite right, no matter what the kind of teacher-student relationship, no matter what the setup is, they all have their pluses and minuses. They all have their strong points and they all have their weaknesses. There's no way to set it up. Everything in life has strong points and weaknesses, right? I don't look like it's student-teacher relationships as there's one right way to do it. There's Mm -hmm. many ways to do it, you know, and I just happen to do it, you know, the way I do, which reflects the way I was, I think, when I entered spirituality. I saw my own spiritual teacher as a coach, you might say, you know, because I came through a lot of my young life. I was a very, very highly competitive endurance athlete and I wanted to be as good as I could be, and so I went to my coach, and my coach said, here's how to do it. But I knew my coach couldn't go out there and train for me. They couldn't do it. Nor did I ask my coach to be a God figure for me. Right. So I've always seen, even when I was a student, I saw my teacher kind of a bit, without thinking about it at the time, but a bit more like a coach. Like, just tell me the right way to do this, and then I have to go out and do it. And I think that's kind of how I still do things to this day. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be someone's God. I don't want to be someone's sort of final authority figure. You know, I tell people all the time, look, you've got to come in the door with your own inner integrity because I'm not going to really be able to give it to you. You've got to have that for yourself. You'll either delude or not delude yourself for yourself. It's your responsibility ultimately. And to say that really up front is a very different power dynamic.
1: Nice, and it sounds like you really just keep going back to that and reminding people of that, and that's kind of the, the pointer that you have.
2: Yeah, 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 that's the pointer that I have. And I try to emphasize to people that they do have the capacity, too. I think one of the mistakes people make when they go to spiritual teachers is they think, because I'm not enlightened... I've got to leave my good sense at the door. And I tell people, look, it's just the opposite. If you want this enlightenment thing, you can't get to it by riding the coattails on some enlightened person. It doesn't work that way. You've got to verify everything for yourself in your own experience. You don't actually have the luxury of believing in anything, believing in what I say just because I say it, or believing in anybody, including the Buddha, just believing it because he said it because that has no transformative value. You have to go inside and find out for yourself and your own experience, prove it true or false for yourself. So that right there is a very different relationship with spirituality. I think in one sense, it's inherently more challenging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds similar to, I was listening to a teacher of mine talk on the Seven Factors of Awakening, this was Jack Cornfield, and he said, oh, and the eighth factor, it's common sense. <laughs> and uh, it sounds similar to what you're saying, that there's just a sense of not leaving behind just the basic intelligence because it's the spiritual path that's somehow yeah. different.
2: Yeah, the job of a spiritual teacher in one part is to help people hone in on what's really true inside of themselves, including just their ordinary good sense. To help them hone in, like, what is it? Because it can be hard not to delude yourself, right? And that's part of a teacher's task is to help people distinguish between what's true inside and what's not true inside to help show them the ways that one can delude themselves and the ways you can actually be clear. When the spiritual teacher doesn't try to take responsibility for that themselves or take it away from their students, I think the students actually they find the capacity within themselves or they don't, and they go and find a different type of spiritual teacher. You know, because like I said, just because I do it the way I do it, I have nothing in me that thinks it's inherently the better way or the way anybody else should do it. It's just, this is the way I do it. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. You'll go somewhere else where it does work for you.
1: So, one really interesting practice that I saw you suggest to people or that you did yourself was a practice of this kind of writing inquiry, taking an inquiry question and really using like a journal to go into the question and and write only the answers that feel authentically true to not write anything that's just bullshit, so to speak. And I, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that practice and kind of how you came up with it. It sounds like a really relevant practice for some reason to me to a Western mm-hmm. audience, and I don't know if, if that was intentional or not.
2: Well, you know, it's just what I did when I was a student. I mean, I didn't start out doing it, but I, I just started, you know, I used to kind of do some journaling, and that can be clarifying because, you know, if you write something down, it's like you get your thoughts on a piece of paper and they stop jumping around all over the place, right? You stop thinking in circular patterns if you write it down because it's very obvious when you're thinking in circular patterns. So I found it useful to write down certain thoughts. And then later, I thought, okay, now, what if I took whatever the question I had? Is At one time, let's say, for instance, I had the question, well, what is surrender really? What is it really? What do I know about this? And I thought, okay, what if I was going to tell somebody what true surrender was? And so I started to sit down and write what that was, because I think we are all better at communicating when we're trying to communicate to somebody else rather than communicate to ourselves. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you
2: try to explain something to a friend, it's easier to explain to them than often it is to explain to yourself. So I would sort of start writing as if I was writing for somebody else to make something clear for somebody else. And what I would do is I would refuse to write anything that I didn't know was really true. That's where it changed from journaling into what I call a meditative inquiry. Journaling is just kind of getting your thoughts out. This was only putting the thoughts down that I saw to be really absolutely true. And I would find that when I would start to write in this way that I could literally get halfway through a sentence. And in the middle of a sentence, I'd go, okay, that's the last word that I know to be true. And I'd just stop there. And I would refuse to write anything more until I could find out what was true. And sometimes I would sit there for 15 minutes before maybe two words would come that were really true. I'd write those two words and then I wouldn't write anything else until it was true. So it was a very concentrated, challenging way to write because it was in its way meditative, right? It was to write in this way isn't just to spew out one's thoughts. It's, it's really more a product of deep listening inside than it is deep thinking inside. I just found it to be extraordinarily useful for me. And I did quite a bit of that for quite a while. And I found that I could get through sort of these spiritual roadblocks that I used to bump into. I could find insights through this process that might take me much, much, much longer than simply meditating even though I did a lot of meditation at that time as well. I found those, to combine the two a sort of some way to actively inquire and a meditation where you just sort of let go and relax, those two really provided a really powerful dynamic, kind of like a yin and a yang thing. you know. If, and I found as a teacher, if people are just meditating, there's often not that catalyst, that spark that will spark awakening or deep insight. They may get into deep meditative states of absorption, but spiritual awakening isn't to get into a deep state of absorption. It's a state of aha. And so I think the inquiry part adds energy. It adds a catalyst. It kind of keeps whatever is unresolved in you very much at the forefront of your consciousness. And so it adds a real dynamic to it. And so I found it really useful for myself. And I, at times, suggest that other people might want to do their own version of the same thing. Especially if they're working with something they're really stuck on. Some patterns they just can't see through. Some repetitive thing that they know they have to have a deeper insight into, but they just can't seem to find it. I'll often say, well, sit down and communicate the answer to your question, but don't write anything unless you know it's totally true. That's how I came up with it. Nice. And that's how sometimes I have people utilize it. Because if you do it right, you spend much more time sitting in silence than you do actually writing.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it.
2: You know, because how much can anybody write that they know is absolutely true? It might take you a couple hours to get a half a sentence out. <laughs> you know? But if we're talking about what's really true and we're talking about spirituality, then those are the things we want to really find out about ourselves. What do we know that's really true as opposed to all the nonsense that we imagine we know is true? And that's what I found the process of this sort of type of inquiry through writing really did. It's not so much... The valuable part was not only what I found, but was really also that it showed me what I didn't know, which is really valuable. It's extraordinarily important. It's kind of like a spring cleaning, you know? You just dust out your consciousness. You go, wow, 99% of the things that I think I know, when I really examine them honestly, you're all of a sudden not so sure if it's really true or not. And it's really valuable to empty out the mind in that way. And empty out the old belief system, you know?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it sounds sort of similar to that whole Zen idea of, uh, of great doubt, of building up the sense of not knowing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Like the Korean Zen teacher used to say, don't know mind. Hmm. But you can be sitting there trying to be and don't know mind, but you might not even know what don't know mind means. Do you know what I mean? Just because someone says it doesn't know what it means. But when you really start to look you really see, gosh, I actually don't know anything. Now that's don't know mind. Does mm. that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, no, it doesn't.
2: <laughs> where this really started for me was a very, very sort of eye-opening and in some ways sobering and chilling moment after a, a sashin that I sat in a retreat. And I was sitting there, and at the end of it, people were having breakfast after it was over and talking and I heard a group of old-time students had been at this like, you know, 20, 30, a couple of them, 40 years. And they were talking and they were all talking about how when they were young they remember getting involved in Buddhism and they wanted enlightenment and to awaken. And now that they'd been doing it for 30 or 40 years, you know, they kind of just let go of that. They hadn't really found out what that was but they found, they kind of found a peace with not finding out what this enlightenment thing was about so they had a piece about that and they actually did have a piece about that you know like well maybe not going to happen but it's okay and I could see for them it was okay and that it was okay but for me at 23 years old and I suddenly look over and go that could be me in 40 years I could be sitting there saying well the enlightenment thing didn't really work out but you know I'm really at peace with that And something about me at 23 years old, I literally had to bite my bottom lip. I literally dug my teeth into my bottom lip. Otherwise, I just would have screamed out this huge, no, like it cannot end that way. That's what I thought. That can't happen. That's not acceptable. It was fine for them. So it wasn't a judgment for them. But for me, it scared the hell out of me. And that's the day when I thought, okay, that's it. I realized I was on my own because I realized you can't just follow the tradition because it might not work out. Just doing what you're told because someone says that's the way to do it and that's the way they've always done. I thought, okay, I don't have that luxury. I got to prove everything true or false for myself and it's up to me. And I didn't leave my teachers and I didn't leave my tradition and I didn't stop, many, I didn't stop doing any of that. But the internal relationship shifted. And what I was really confronted with is I thought, you know, not only do I not know enlightenment is, I don't even know if there's such a thing. Maybe we're all just deluding ourselves. Maybe this is just a pipe dream. But you see, up till that point, I couldn't even ask myself that question. I couldn't even admit that maybe it was just a pipe dream. It was too frightening. But as soon as I could admit that, it sort of frightened me into a clarity. I thought, well, I have to find out then, don't I? And I don't know if you can sense it, but there was a real aloneness in it. There was a very stark energy to it. You know that, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to find this out for myself. And I look back, you know, many, many years later and... And I look at that moment. as probably one of the most significant moments in my whole spiritual seeking days. Because it was the day that I stopped accepting anything simply because somebody said it, including the Buddha. And I look back and I go, that was the most important thing I ever did, was to do that. I didn't throw out what anybody said, but I realized until I've proved it to be true in myself, I don't actually know if it's true or not. Now, when you do that, you feel very, very alone. You feel like there's very little to grab hold of because there's almost nothing that you you actually know for certain. And so it kind of scares you into a a clarity, you might say.
1: Hmm. (laughs) Nice, and it sounds like that really connects both to the writing inquiry and the the kind of the energy behind that. And also when we're talking about the student teacher relationship, like that's what you keep pointing people back in themselves is to find out for themselves. Yeah. Um, Yeah. sounds like that's been a major theme in your, in your own experience and then the way that you work with people.
2: Sure. I think for all of us, you know, however we teach kind of reflects ourselves and what we did and the way I teach is too. And sometimes that works for people. I've told other people the same story when I've taught several times, and, you know, some people are kind of inspired by it. Other people get so darn spooked that they just get despondent. You know, like, oh, God, you're right. I don't know anything. And, you know, how can I ever do that? They get overwhelmed by it. So it can have, like, everything, a double-edged sword, right? But in the end, I see this as the hallmark I mean, I always like to point back to, look, this is what the Buddha did. This is what got the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. He went to all the teachers. He went all the teachings. He went through the whole circuit of the day. He became an ascetic. He did everything he was supposed to do. And at the end of the day, it didn't quite work out for him. So there he is in a totally catch-22 situation. He can't keep doing what he's done. He can't keep doing what everybody else is doing. It hasn't worked. But he can't just walk away from it either because he can never forget about it. He has to find this answer. So he eventually finds himself under this tree all by himself. Nobody else. Him and him alone. And he's got to come to his own realization for himself. And I think that there's sort of a, a motif in this, you know? You see it. Through history, Jesus the same way, you know, as I always remind people, look, Jesus was an extraordinary person, but Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus came from Judaism, but he was someone who who found his own insight in it. You see, he stepped out of the mold and he found something extraordinary. Buddha stepped out of the mold and he found something extraordinary. So I'm always suggesting to people from the very beginning, from step one, go ahead, step out of the mold. You're going to have to do it sooner or later. You know, you may end up being still your dharma, your karma may still be to be a very traditional Buddhist or a traditional Christian or a traditional Jew. That's fine if it's sort of what your dharma is. But I think a lot of people don't even want to question it.
0: is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network.